all for coming. Greetings, <clears throat> greetings. It's um, great to be here. Um, it's a bit of a mystery as to why I'm here because I, basically I hope I won't mess things up for Ramesh. <laughs> He's a very kind man. He was very kind to invite me as, uh, as an interlocutor. We, um, as Kelly mentioned, we actually did meet via that Zapatista spaceship. Um, so I guess it was meant to be that we should meet. And it is true, we do enjoy talking. A lot. We spent a lot of time speaking. So, um, but I know how much he's been working towards this book, and it's amazing that it's out, Ramesh. And the timing, I think, could not be uh, more interesting now that we have a Twitter presidency. Um, so, the, you know, the world outside of the internet seems to have been molded quite massively by these technologies, and it's so remarkable that Ramesh has been investigating this globally. Um, Ramesh, it's an honor to be here with you. So, if you, I don't know if you want to tell a little bit about the general impulse of why you thought this book needed to happen, and then maybe yeah. we could take it from there. Well, the, the, I mean, the book is really—it's—it's it's come out of my heart and my work and my own, my intellectual, um, political, and personal practice. Um, you know, I'm a former—I'm a former engineer who um, studied engineering and went to MIT for graduate school, and. Um, you know, in the processes of like building the systems, right, that like have come to define and shape our world, right? Like Google was sort of being talked about by us at MIT in the early 2000s. We were building platforms that were sort of like Google. You know, we were building platforms that were that came to came to resemble platforms like Facebook. There was a sense that I had of this question of like, who are we going to serve? Whose voices are we going to support? And whose voices are we not going to support? as we are in these incredibly privileged, powerful institutions and building these tools that we only prophesized, <laughs> only prophesized, we imagined would come to actually connect and fundamentally transform our world, right? And I was sort of was thinking about how the story of politics today in our country and in so many parts of the world is partly a story about the internet, right? So I wrote this book out of a sense and feeling I had that... I wanted to think about how to develop these newer technologies in ways that really serve and support diverse cultures, diverse voices, diverse perspectives. And I was thinking about this idea and this, this concern I had you know, while I was in graduate school that we were basically just building these gee whiz technologies, you know, from, al from algorithms to systems to interfaces to tools. And we somehow assumed that as we just spread them all over the world, that we would bring the world closer in our own image. And I sort of felt that's kind of not the way this thing should be, right? Like we build technologies that resemble us as humans. Humans create technologies. But which humans are behind those desks, right? And so, like, all my work and the stories of this book are stories of collaboration with diverse cultures and communities all over the world where together we're reimagining technology. We're reimagining re re almost every component of technology that one can think of, from, like, how you build a network to how you design a system to how you kind of protect yourself from surveillance, to how you empower a political and social movement. There's stories in there from the Egyptian Revolution where I was doing my field work. So 
the book, even in this current moment where I think a lot of us are sort of bummed out about the political environment in this country, this book is meant to be felt and experienced in a very positive sense, at least by me, because it's, it's a book of stories of empowerment and collaboration and mobilization. Um, so I'm really grateful that you all could come, and I look forward to us all having a conversation today. Um, rather than me reading this book to you, I will just tell you some stories and um, hopefully interact with you around it. So. Yay. Um, glad you Thanks. Glad you touched upon the diversity um, issue because that's one of the first things I wanted to bring up. Um, in the book, you mentioned um, bring up the concept of deep diversity. Um, and as we well know, uh, a massive tree plantation campaign does not produce a forest. As much as the release of 500 jaguars does not create a jungle. Um, so I wanted to ask you if you could talk about a little bit the parallels between the reali realities of biodiversity on Earth and the realities of technological diversity in human cultures. Because I remember when I was a kid, you know, I say, for instance, went out with my parents, the conversation would never be, hey, if you want to, call me on the AT&T telephone. <laughs> we'd be like, get in touch with me, you know. Um, so it's interesting, you know, now it seems to be every time that we're talking about how we get in touch with each other, that we have to name the technologized vehicle through which we are having this communication. And uh, so, yeah, it, it, are humans using fewer and fewer ways to communicate yeah. with yeah. each other platforms? Is that a good thing? Bad thing? Is kind of like. Um. So I've been doing a lot of media outreach this week, um, and I was I was on the Young Turks and KCRW over the last couple of days, and I mentioned this piece that came out in the New York Times called AI, so artificial intelligence, AI's white guy problem. And that's sort of a catchy title for a phenomenon that I kind of mentioned earlier, which is when we create and design systems, we often create and design technologies based on who we are, right? And so it just so happens to be, and this is not meant as a sort of diss per se, that the people running these Silicon Valley companies tend to come out of this sort of background, right? They, they tend to see the world in ways that are sort of built upon an experience of that comes out of like science and technology, which has always been kind of coming out of the Enlightenment and European era thinking. So I think you all know this, but right now in the world, the world has about 7,000 languages, and it's estimated that about half of those languages are going to disappear within the next 100 years. I mean, you all know about climate change and sort of the astonishing potential loss that's ongoing and continuing um, of plants and animals um, in our world. And so the question is that I, that I write about in this book is why is that occurring, right? Like, why, are, why is all of this vanishing? And why does it matter that these forms of diversity are vanishing? And it's not because, like, someone black or someone brown or someone of this or that culture is disappearing. It's not in and of itself. It's because in diversity lies our strength. And what do I mean by that? I don't mean simple identity politics that I describe in this book. I actually talk about very different ways of seeing the world, like very different ways of experiencing and talking about something. So this is a, book, this is a word I use in the book that I call ontology, 
Basically, what happens when we come into conversation with people who are different than us, who might see something in a very different way, and how can we work together across our differences rather than flatten our differences? So what does this all have to do with technology? It has a lot to do with technology, right? Because there's like 1.8 billion people in the world that are Facebook users, and about the same number that are Google users. Um, and about 4 billion people in the world, out of 7 billion total, have access um, to the internet. So it's like, whose internet, right? And so the question that I'm asking in the book is, can we think of an internet that doesn't flatten our voices so we have to simply subscribe to invisible protocols that are built into technology, right? Like I put something on Facebook, God knows where it goes and who sees it, right? Breitbart is the most popular political news source on Facebook. How many of you have seen Breitbart posts on your Facebook feed? Like half, one, one and a half. <laughs> That's a half. Um, <laughs> out of the whole room, right? How, did you know that? So like, what I'm trying to say here is not that we want more Breitbart in our life. <laughs> I'm, I'm saying that we need to figure out ways to develop tools and systems that get us into better conversations with one another across our diversity, across our differences. And so the book is full of, like again, all these stories of me hanging out, learning, collaborating with Native American communities, Egyptian activists, um, peoples and communities in South Asia. Um, and in all of these projects, I'm trying to think about how with these people directly, with these communities, often that I'm invited to work with, we develop and design technologies that support those ways of knowing, if you will, those traditions, those belief systems, so we can bring them, when appropriate, into conversation with one another. I mean, if that doesn't make sense, like, I will continue to clarify that. But that's really the charge of the book, right? Like, how do we think of an internet that actually counters this astonishing loss in linguistic, cultural, and, you know, biodiversity as well? How do we think of technology in that way, where it's not connectivity at the cost of diversity? Right. That... Another thing that um, for me is central um, is the idea of depth or historical depth, like how far back in time things go. Um, and so I said, um, you know, there are concepts of thoughts that once once which are articulated so clearly that once you come in contact with them, just the mere fact of coming in contact with them is liberating. One that comes to mind is Angela Davis' prison industrial complex which changed the ways we think about the United States, justice, and slavery. Um, so a concept in your book that had a profound impact on me was this recency bias. Recency bias. As we see how, like, how Twitter, like you don't need to know what somebody said last week, you just need to know what I said yesterday. Um, so this recency bias, uh, when applied to 21st century, 21st century technologies and the corporations who develop and copyright them um, make me ask, can one really understand a tree focusing exclusively on the latest flower to bloom, on the latest leaf to gain airborne qualities? Is there such a thing as a geek who is into roots? Um, so how, you know, that's my question, like how... 
It seems like we're coming ever, 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 ever closer to the surface to the extent that the shiny screen is now a surface that is meant to be possible to encompass the entire complexity of, and depth of human experience. Um, so I would, I would, yeah, I would like for you, to, if you could address this recency bias and how we can break from being stuck in the present moment and actually, you know, going. Do any of you want to guess how many years old Google is? Just about 15, and they say 18, but let's say 15. Facebook's about 15 as well, right? Yet these these tools and companies and the platforms and services that they provide have come to dominate our world to such an extent. You know, I was mentioning 1.8 billion people, right, that are more or less users. They tend to be the wealthier people in the world, right? Um, they've, they've come to be, define our experiences of what is, right? Like you only know what is based on what's visible to you, right? So this term recency bias that I describe, it's just a, it's a term that basically means like we often privilege and um, pay attention more to like the stuff that's newer, right? To, to like, to like the t especially with new technology, right? Like we, we, uh, the technologies that come into our life have such a seductive appeal to them partly because they're new that we sometimes forget what might be at the root of that tree, right? Mm -hmm. And the root of the tree, for me, is not technology. The root of the tree, for me, is about culture and diversity and voice. And so that is fundamentally the argument of the book. It's clearly culture and technology have a relationship with one another, right? Like we, sh we build and shape technologies, and technologies also shape and impact us. But insofar as it's possible, it's incredibly important to me, and I try to introduce some examples of this from different parts of the world, um, that we think about technologies not as fixed or universal or dominant. For God's sakes, these platforms are only 15 years old, and they've changed a lot, right? Like, they're changing all the time. So there's clearly some adaptivity, if you will, going on in these opaque places you know, they're in Silicon Valley, but you know what I mean. Um, these, these places where these technologies are being designed and developed. And instead, I'm saying, you know, instead of just simply accepting and taking these platforms for granted as they stand, we need to think about these platforms as adaptive and shaping themselves in relation to our own communities, our own user communities, our own cultures, right? And so on every level from the political information you get to how a culture is or is not articulated through a technology, there is a possibility as, and a lot of the book kind of concerns me thinking as a designer, right? Like I'm, a, I'm a trained as a designer in my graduate work to build these platforms and, and technologies with different communities, right? Like so everything from like how you design a database, how you design an interface, how you design an algorithm, how you design like who has access to what information in what, in what contexts, all of that is open for us to take control over. And it's high time and it's sad that at this political moment, like this argument is really resonating and circulating, but that's time, you know.
So the Angela Davis point is um, I was really fortunate to see uh, Angela Davis in person with, with Shama, my, my partner, um, in Chile. And she was talking about this term that she said, the tyranny of the universal. Mm-hmm. And so, like, what does that mean? Well, on some level, like, universal sounds good, right? Like, you know, it's good to be connected. It's good to feel part of a larger entity, part of a larger system. But generally speaking, that which is universal tends to be defined by those who have power, right? I think most of this crowd's going to agree with me, but when we say all lives matter versus black lives matter, you're actually reinforcing a system where black, where black lives haven't necessarily mattered quite as much as all lives, right? The other lives. So that's what she was referring to when she said those words to us. And I was thinking so deeply about that, and I was thinking about this myth of universality around the internet. You know, this idea like, it's universal, it's everywhere, it's accessible, all we have to do is access it. But like, whose internet, right? Who is it supporting? So those are the questions that I'm just trying to grapple with through all my work, and it's, I'm dealing with it to some extent in this book. You mentioned also the uh, world listening versus world making, like the way in which these new technologies are, the narrative surrounding these new technologies is always about how they're going to rid us from the stale, the slow, old world and deliver us into the shiny and fast future. Um, So it's always a narrative about how the world will never be the same now that we have this tool, you know. So Ramesh talks about the importance of world listening rather than um, world making. and I remember noticing that having come from Europe, from Portugal in high school, you're supposed, you have to learn two foreign languages. Um, and we sort of have a joke that says, you know, multilingual, trilingual, bilingual, American. This is, uh, <laughs> and, you know, in the, in the time that I've been here, it's interesting that my friends have like, oh, have you, have you, I've learned, do you know Photoshop? Do you know HTMI? Do you know it's like and they've like gone through this effort to learn so many languages that allows them to talk with machines, and I've run into such few people that tell me, you know what, I'm learning Mandarin or I'm learning Spanish or I'm learning, you know, Tzotzil or Tzeltal or you know, or I'm learning, God forbid, Dine or Ohlone, you know. So, um, yeah, the importance of listening, you know. Um, recently, I just I was doing a an event that involved recording, and I was trying to get a sound person to record the event. I was having a hard time, so I had to ask several people. And it was really beautiful because somebody that I would ask would say, oh, no, I, I can't do it, but I'll, I'll recommend some people. And everybody would send me like a list of eight or six names. And I was like, wow, this is such like a neat, mutually supportive community. And then I thought, well, maybe it's because they are people who believe, believe that listening is important, you know, because yeah. they record sound. Um, um, so, uh, so this this um, narrative about the world changing, uh, for me, a, a screaming example was the Arab Spring. Where right. I was like, Arab Spring, people in the Arab world are using the internet to create revolutions. And, and spring became fall, and hope became incredible oppression, and liberation became like torturing, and 400 people being condemned to death at the same time. And all of a sudden, nobody talks about the Arab Spring. It's like, when technology seemed to be delivering this future and then you the archaic past actually is so much mightier than this child technology all of a sudden nobody's interested to talk about it why aren't why aren't we talking about egypt anymore 
Yeah. Um, so yeah. you were there, and I yeah. would love for you to share. Some yeah, no, this so it's it's so it's such a great point. I mean, I want to just show you a couple pictures to kind of talk about what's going on in this book in relation to what you're saying, Rigo. Okay, so this is an image some of you might have seen. Um, it's an image from Standing Rock. It was it was up on the Guardian, and you sort of see these sorts of clashes that are occurring, right? I mean, and this was before Trump took office, so. You know who knows what's going on right now, um, and I was I was um, speaking to some friends uh, who are um, native leaders, and they're connected with folks uh, standing rock Sioux, and they were explaining to me that the water protectors are not just seeing this as a matter of private property, right? That's a very Western framing around these kinds of clashes. It's not my water versus your water or my land versus your land. It's they see themselves as protecting the water for seven generations. You know? So they're like the ancestors for seven generations. It's it's amazing, right? Like I, I don't think of myself in those ways, but that's what culture is, like those differences. And I was just thinking about like why why is it that so few of us know that fact? Why is the internet not empowering that sort of form, those forms of deeper cultural dialogue, what I call deep diversity, right? Like I was, that's the term you were mentioning. So the thing that I, and that's why this, this idea that like technologies are making the world, but these technologies themselves are just being constantly designed, tweaked, engineered, and, and manipulated in new ways, but we don't quite have power or knowledge of how or in what ways. Instead, there's a whole other approach, right? And like the book is full of these stories of like another approach. And this approach is like sitting with people, figuring out how to keep your grant, <laughs> you know, because I'm funded by these research grants, some of you know. Keep your grant while like not following these deadlines per se, and kind of working with people and sort of being okay with the unexpected. And I just want to show you a couple images of this. So that's an image of all these chains of production that go into some of the technologies we take for granted, an image from Foxconn in China, where these iPhones are assembled and other devices, and an image from the Congo um, of a Congolese um, miner um, who's mining for Colton. This is another Guardian, Guardian images here. Um, and these are images from Tahrir Square, which I'll speak about later, but I just want to show this. Okay, this is a lot, um, chapters three and four in the book describe um, times I spent, matter of years, um, off and on with Native American communities. And the process of listening, or one might just say observing and sitting and kind of letting what re is revealed to you be revealed, like when it's revealed to you, and just sort of being at peace with that, is like a big part of the book that I describe. It's like a big part of like what I was trying to learn myself I don't think I had these skills before doing this kind of work. I have them much more so now, and I have a long way to go. I have a long way to go. But what's going on here? This is a group of Zuni elders who invited me into a room, and they said, we're going to examine a map in a museum. I'm like, that's a map? That's an indigenous map. But they, if you notice, they're all looking at it at the same time because they have to collectively look at this map to make meaning out of it. Like, that's a concept that, like, totally escaped my world when I was, like, designing technology in graduate school. I thought it's, like, one person per computer, right? 
It's a totally different model, totally different cultural model, cultural way of experiencing knowledge and information. I'm going to give you another example. Did you know that this is how my friends at Zuni use the system we designed together? Do you see how many people there are in the room? So there is a number of people in the room, and they all have to be in the room looking at the same screen, some at the same time, and some have to actually leave the room at various points. So they're looking at images of cultural objects, <laughs> and they're talking about those images. And, these are, and I described this. We developed some digital culture systems, digital cultural heritage systems. But when they look at these images, they have to sit with each other. They have to collectively experience these images because they have to have conversations about these images for these images and therefore the knowledge that these images convey to actually be meaningful. So people at various times here will put their fingers in their ears because they're not supposed to know certain things. People will leave the room and come, other people will come in the room. So there's like all of these cultural and social, and the term we use is practices, but there are all these forms of activity and performance and ritual that are part of the process of, of, of knowing, right? The process of being, that, that's culture in so many ways. And in their best moments, this is really like what I'm arguing in the book, in their best moments, technologies facilitate these types of activities. It's not just all of us, like, I have this image in the, be <laughs> in the beginning of the book of, like, of Mark Zuckerberg, right, from Facebook, addressing a group of developers at a virtual reality conference, and everybody has an Oculus Rift on, and he's, like, the only one without an Oculus Rift on. You all saw this image, right? And I was like, this is the society of the spectacle here. <laughs> uh, but... But basically, that's one way of collectively experiencing technology, right? Where you're all atomized with your devices. And here's another way. And so, like, the only thing I'm trying to get at here is that's, like, that's kind of what I mean by, like, world listening. And that's just, like, a process. It's a constant process, right? It's an ethnographic process in my case. Um, a process of, like, being taught the unexpected. Um, there, the book is full of stories of, that are, like, hilarious at times, of um, of me being put in my place by these communities, and um, I I can't tell you how much that has influenced me and like has completely changed um, who I am and what I do. Um, the process of learning and world listening. Yeah, it's uh, amazing that you know, you mentioned elders. You know, I think it's impossible to talk about um, indigenous world without talking about elders, right? Um, and whenever you buy into this narrative that these new technology companies say that, we, you know, the world used to be, whatever, slow, and now it's fast and better, so why care about, you know, why care about the past if the past is just like a, um, an impoverished version of what the present is, and definitely even more so the future. Um, so why listen to old people? <laughs> they were using phones when it was plugged into the wall, man. Shit, who cares what they think? <laughs> you know? Uh, and whereas in a, in, a, in a, if you are in an indigenous context, you, ha you know that you have, that's who you care about what they think the most, is old folks who have been around. Um, and I think the first time that I noticed, at least, that indigenous world sort of becoming present um, via or appearing in the radar of these technologies was when Native people did the water challenge. You know, when it was like you would get in the water and do a little video and then send it to your cousin or your auntie and your uncle, and all of a sudden it was like, oh, did you hear about the water challenge? You know, and friends that I 
new native folks from Northern California that I've not I've known for two or three decades. They'd never mentioned the internet before, but now here's Brian Tripp going into the river, you know. Yeah. And it was beautiful that this technology was used as a way to invite each other and demonstrate that this biological body that we have, we can take it into the water, you know. Um, and now here we have the water protectors, you know, so it's um, continuity is not a failure, right? Yeah. And I believe that this new New technologies are always wanting to disrupt this continuity and f having us f on the edge of our seat, thinking only about tomorrow. Um, and can, I, can I mention something about that? Yeah. I, I published a piece on quartz this week, um, which is like an Atlantic, um, you know, sister piece. And I describe, like, what happens when you search for information online. Like you all know this, right? Like it's just it just relates in some way about knowledge, right? And who's how knowledge circulates on the internet and through search and social media platforms. And I was searching. I was, I was describing like I was searching for um, in the book. I described this. I was searching for like Zuni pottery, right? Like, and I've been working with the Zuni community for ten years, the Native American community that the book has a whole chapter on. And the first site that came back to me was eBay. <laughs> and trust me, like, dude, the, the Zuni are not into their pottery being bought and sold on eBay. You know, I think you can tell. And that's not because it's, like, their pottery, right? Again, it's not, like, a private property rights issue. It's actually because the pottery has cultural and sometimes spiritual meaning, right? So those are the... And I do believe that... I really do believe that if those forms of knowledge were more part of our digital conversations, that people would, would, be, would interact with these objects, for example, in ways that were more respectful. It's not a, a radical proposal here. It's just a proposal to open up the black boxes, right? Like open up the choices that go into ordering the world in the ways that are ordered through these technologies. So I just want to like exp show that. I'll show you the screenshot too. So, <laughs> just to prove it. <laughs> um. You know, social media is a word that I would like you to, because um, I know we've talked a lot about that and what does it mean. Um, but, um, and again, because I know that Ramesh's um, research and his lifetime has been spent a lot searching um, for all knowledge amidst this hysteria around new technologies. Um, but in January 1994, the world was surprised with the arrival of the Zapatista, right? Zapatistas in southeastern Mexico. I was in Portugal at the time, it was front page news. Um, and so it was very surprising that this indigenous group had risen up in arms. But another thing that was very surprising about them is that they would issue these communiques this from the jungle. And the communiques would be in Barcelona, Paris, New York, New Delhi, Sao Paulo, Buenos Aires, at the same time. And I was like, whoa, how do they do, the, how do, they do that? Turns out they were using this thing called the internet. Um, and, and, you know, one, one sort of assault on someone would happen in Chiapas, and people would know it all over the world at the same time. So this was early 1994. Just for a comparison, Yahoo, which is like a dinosaur by <laughs> Silicon Valley standards, was founded in March 1995. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Um, so, um, different people have different ideas of what s the social is. Like, 
you know, somebody's idea of the social might be, I'm going to ride from Alaska to Argentina on my bicycle. You know, somebody <laughs> else's idea of the social might be, I'm going to develop an app and how to meet at the nearest French restaurant. I don't know. <laughs> um, so um, my question, I guess, is if you could address a little bit, address a little bit how somehow the word social got uh, insinuated into something that was clearly, maybe if anything, was asocial. Yeah. Um, and And so... So, and so one of the one of the parts of the book in chapter five, I describe some stories of actually visiting some of the caracoles, which is like the district offices where the Zapatista communities are based. This is in Chiapas in southern Mexico, and um, and it's it's totally interesting. And like every like political and social movement has layers to it, right? And like different technologies and different tools like support different layers of what a movement is. So do you guys think that at that time in like 1994 the Zapatistas were themselves online in the jungles of Chiapas? No way, no. But they were figuring out ways through allies and you know through their urban connections to publicize and globalize and spread information about their movement during doing uh, through usenet fora remember usenet it's like that's what that was what was being done like alt.hippie alt.peace alt. you know environment that's what it used to be organized around the alt dot. We all, you know, so I remember this. It's um, and and these these are like community fora, right? Where they were taking what it's a very local struggle, right? Like a place based struggle about their land and their history and their relationship with the Mexican government, and they globalized it so much so that Marcos, you know, one of the head spokespeople, Subcomandante Marcos, it was actually. S- seen as like a soap opera icon in Mexico within like six months of them doing this, right? Like so he became an icon, like a heartthrob in Mexican like kind of bourgeoisie spaces soon after that. So I just think that's really interesting because how are the Zapatistas themselves, how are they communicating? It's CB radio. Radio, right? And it's like, that's a network technology too, right? And, and, And so like the point really that that I was sort of trying to address with this in the book is like again just like my call for us to think about culture and diversity and communities as we develop and design technology let's also when we tell a story of some phenomena let's remember that it's like social and political and cultural and then think about media and technology like in a more like grounded way right so that's really like what I was trying to get at with that. So, so when you know, we know that social media are social in some ways and not social in other ways. But it depends on the affordances of the different platforms and who, what we're talking about, and in what context. But like in the context of like the Arab Spring, where the book describes some of my stories, like wandering around Egypt uh, between 2011 and 2013, being like talking with people, people telling me like tell Facebook to like you know, lower the price of tomatoes in my neighborhood. And, uh, you know, like, just these kinds of ideas of what Facebook is, right? Um, so in the context of that work, I recognized that here's a small group of activists that were using social media technologies, but they weren't using it to mobilize and rally necessarily people in their own country. They were using it to globalize their story, 
Right? It's like very similar in many ways to the Zapatista story. So they were using it as a social mode of information dissemination, right? Like they were using it to kind of hijack media and shape media and journalists who could then tell stories about their movement that were both global as well as on their local TV channels. So like that's one layer. But then they were building and organizing locally in lots of other ways, like 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 posters on the walls, um, mosques, neighborhood councils, familial networks, labor movement networks. So, like, that's the amazing part, right? Isn't that, a, like, a way more interesting story than saying, like, you know, a bunch of people were on Facebook and then a revolution happened? <laughs> it's, like, so much more interesting, and, like, it blew me away. Like, I, want, like, I, I promised I would show this image. This is Khaled Abdullah right here. Um, and he's, he's, the, he's one of my like informants, so to speak. Like I've written quite a bit about him in some of my recent pieces. And he's the actor from The Kite Runner. And he's also in that film, The Square. And what's he doing here? He's not like behind his computer. Do you see this? It's collective, just like the Native American example. So like he's taking content that he's seeing on YouTube and digital platforms and screening it like on walls all over the country. Not just him, but it became like a decentralized practice where people all over the country just started to DIY, like shoot video and project it. And at any given time, there were 600 of these things happening in Egypt in any given like couple day period. It was just happening and spreading. It was a viral model. It's like the internet without any fiber optic cables or wires, you know? It's like a network. And so the point I just want to make is like that to me is social, right? Like because that story is not defined solely by the piece of media content that's being projected. It's defined by who's there, you know, what are they there for? Like what are they doing with each other when they're experiencing it? So it's like that's social for me, right? And I just think I I really believe that like Facebook and Google and Twitter can empower those forms of sociality. I just think that there's a little bit of a weird myth that like we're socializing simply by being stuck in our own echo chambers, if you will. All right, cool. So, um, yeah, I'll ask you my last question. Last one, and then we'll open it up, then, please. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because in, th in the end of the book, you kind of come back to this central question that is, um, whose global village is it? Um, whose global village? And the word village, I think, conjures up in our mind like a friendly social space, like a village where you know everybody, where everybody's cool with each other. But So I kind of, since you've challenged me to do this, I've been thinking about it a lot, and I kind of thought about... I feel like we live more in a global villainage. Villainage, you know? Villainage? Villainage, yeah, where the most popular people are the villains, you know? You have, du you have Duterte, you have Trump, you have Putin, you have This is why Hammer. I asked him to do this with me, by the way. <laughs> you have Tamer, and all of a sudden it's like a global villainage where it seems like, you know, there's, no, there's not even mercenaries anymore. They're just contractors, right? So, um... So how, 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 do, how did we get here? How did the village get... How did, how did village life get hijacked by the villains, you know? Um, and, and yeah. How, and, yeah, this is how, like the bummer part. <laughs> I mean, I kind of went there a little bit earlier, but uh, yeah, this is... So, uh, so I'm, writing, I'm writing now like quite a bit about like our political environment in this country and how the internet has been weaponized to support, um, um, you know, this sort of 
like fascist you know movement that we see underway and um and so so all right so like the ways like the story of for me the story of like american politics and american presidential politics the last like three rounds was partly a story about the internet right like how data was collected, how data was monetized, how data was analyzed, the platforms by which political participation occurred. And we know that story with Obama and Howard Dean before that, which is like in the, in the, in the primary campaign against Kerry. This is a really interesting moment right now where the villainage has, 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 has occurred. I'll just say the villain. <laughs> has, villains have emerged because of, partly because of their ability to exploit the ways in which information circulates through our social media platforms and specifically the algorithms that are the, the ways that they saturate these systems and they determine what is and is not visible to whom in what manners. Okay? And so there's a lot of money and support that's um, I've been reading about this quite a bit over the last few months but I by all means my work is not complete in this um, that has gone into what we call weaponizing the fake news phenomenon right so basically what's occurring is there are incredible ways in which um, groups um, like Breitbart were funded and supported um, by by individuals like a guy named Robert Mercer is really important to know. He was a natural language processing AI guy at IBM. So incredibly brilliant, like, you know, technology guy who um, has supported and funded through his hedge fund, not just him, but other people as well, um, various platforms that are collecting incredible amounts of data on about 220 plus million um, Americans. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of data points. Um, some say hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of data points that are being collected about all of that. So that influences a strategy where you can manipulate the so-called global village to actually target people with ads and route how content is flowing and distributing through networked algorithms. Um, so any network architecture can be exploited if you know the logic and can manipulate the movement and mobility of information within those networks. So I think it's an incredibly interesting moment where we're at, where um, the ability to control and manipulate how information flows and visibility and invisibility through Facebook, which is the place people go now for news. Right. right. I mean, it might be stuff we post on Facebook, and you know, no, almost nobody here saw Breitbart articles on Facebook. But it's why is Breitbart so incredibly powerful on Facebook? It's the most popular political news source on Facebook, even though none of us have seen it, or very, one and a half people, I think, <laughs> because the mechanisms by which its visibility is flowing is being determined by these. I guess local villains, <laughs> national villains. So, so it's if there ever was a time to like take back the internet in relation to people's like grassroots cultural voices, um, I think now's a good time. Like CNN seems to be on board with that. The New York Times seems to be on board with that. And when they're on board with things, you know, because they're being discredited and they're and 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 shut out literally, right? And part of the reason I feel like they're being shut out is. Uh, Trump and his administration can get away with it because they're in control on the social media platforms. So, time to take back the global village, huh? Indeed. <laughs> well, thank you, Ramesh, uh, so much. So then, um, if people, have, I don't know. Do you yeah, we have a lot of time. The mic, which is or how do you? How do you? Let's just see if there are any questions. There we go. Yeah, thanks.
And we have like a half hour, or so or what, you know, whatever. So my my question is, um, I'm one of the people who have never heard of Breitbart until you mentioned it. Now, would you say? In terms of taking back the internet, is it my responsibility to seek that out? And as an individual, because yeah. I'm not an uh, information technologist, sure. is it my responsibility to seek that out and penetrate uh, the echo chamber that I'm already in to learn about those? I mean, is it, would that be like on a, a mission list for me to say, like, I'm going to go after 10 um, news platforms that are very conservative so I ha- I'm rightfully informed is that what you're suggesting not exactly <laughs> no but it's such a great question it's because it's not clear exactly what we should or could do I mean we should just start simply by not not completely uh, assuming that the world of Facebook that's presented to us is the same world that's presented obviously to many more people than ourselves, right? Like we start with that. I think it's important to understand definitely the conversations and discourses that are emerging through these sorts of sites. These are, you know, little sites. And one of the ways in which... um, in which these guys that I was mentioning were able to weaponize the visibility of search results of, of were, was by creating lots of small little websites that link to one another because backlinking influences the visibility of content on a search algorithm. Um, but I think, it's, I think it's about us trying to do whatever we can to um, pressure, first of all, um, these platforms and these companies to explain to us why content is chosen that is chosen to give us some possibilities of browsing outside of that. I was reading the Zuckerberg manifesto this morning and it doesn't really deal with these issues the way it should in my opinion. Um, Mark Zuckerberg wrote a manifesto by the way in case you didn't know. <laughs> um, and it's, there's some interesting aspects to it. Um, I, I think more than anything we need to, we need to think about um, how to um, get outside of these bubbles in as many ways as possible that by not necessarily relying on technologies that are producing these bubbles. So, you know, there are some experiments that we can do around this. I shot a video with Fusion where I um, had a, a, a very, very nice uh, lady who's a you know, declared Trump supporter show her um, newsfeed with us, and, and I kind of talked through my newsfeed and we looked at the two in tandem. And so those are the kinds of things that we can do, you know, because I think a number of people who are voting, who voted for Trump and are supportive of, of President Trump still are um, upset about the same issue. So there's something that we can align around here. So there's a lot more to this, though. Yeah. Follow-up question is just that, yeah. is it enough, because it, it's all algorithmic, and so I'm in an echo chamber just because of the way that I... Um, looked at things in my natural organic way, but if I were to start following Breitbart, would I start, would I crack into a whole other code and it may or may not happen. It's definitely worth, that was the last point. Thank you for reminding me. We should experiment with our own sort of digital presence. And that could be also figuring out times when we're going to uh, be careful about what we put online, but also figuring out what we choose to like and in what ways. I think we should constantly be playing with these algorithms, right? It's, it's sad that that's like kind of all we're, the only place we're at with power. Like, like as like mice in a laboratory, but we're going to push further, right? And now that the mainstream media is on this side, like the side of critique that like a lot of us have had, you know, from a more, yeah. So like, like there's a possibility to make this happen. I, I feel optimistic about it. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. GTA. No, I, I don't need the microphone. It's okay. Yeah. It's okay.
I'll, I'll talk about it. <laughs> and, uh, I want to ask you, uh, to what degree is uh, the, the Western hegemony over the internet? Student, right? uh, is it, uh, to what degree is it just a, a new application of existing power structures that existed before the internet was around? Uh, and I kind of want to back that up with an observation that I recently had with my daughter who wanted to watch a documentary about uh, mobile architecture culminating in the construction of Taj Mahal. So on YouTube, I found her wanted. There's a bunch of them, right? And she watched it, I watched it with her, and practically everyone who was interviewed in the documentary were white people. You know, usually either European, North American, fucking uh, French. Uh, not a single uh, person from India or, or from Iran, so on and so forth. Dude. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. But that struck me as very yeah. familiar because that's how it was when I was a kid growing up. Yeah. Kind of documentary. Yeah. And then I thought about you know news programs or travel programs like the Globe Trekker that features you know countries in Asia or Africa, and they interviewed people you know, like Western expatriates living there or uh, you know backpackers having their adventures into those countries. Um, and those folks over there, already planet, I can bet you most of the ones on sure. African countries or Asian countries are written by mostly you know, Western, usually white people. So, to what extent is the problem that you're diagnosing the legacy of colonialism uh, versus something that's more unique? Yeah. I mean, I actually describe um, in the first chapter, first full chapter of the book, how various, um, the history of, like, databases, you know, and, like, seeing databases, not just in the kind of IBM's creation of database, but in, in the legacies and histories of the Enlightenment, a time when much of the world was colonized uh, by European countries. And so I describe how the other Right, like the other being like the places and communities and cultures from which objects and entities and knowledge was taken and extracted, how the other was kind of reorganized according to the logic of the colonizer, right? Because enlightenment knowledge, uh, you know, it's incredibly complex, but basically, you know, was was built upon certain types of ideas of how information is to be ordered and presented and classified. Specifically, I'm thinking about classification. So, t like on every level, yes, yes, on every level. You know, I can't, I can't, I can't uh, disagree. However, there is something incredibly powerful, also, and like we all know that about digital technology, about network technology, about its ability to rapidly activate and mobilize large numbers of people to spread information so largely. The Zapatista example he mentioned, like the way th you know things blew up, but then somehow got forgotten with the Arab Spring, right? Like there are these moments, right? Like with Black Lives Matter right now, like it's it's very huge on social media. So there are these capacities for. Uh, groups and cultures and communities to take hold of these network technologies because the network technologies themselves are not necessarily not necessarily um, tools of the West, right, or tools of the colonizer, right? I mean, sure, the people that created and owned and monetize and tend to manipulate these technologies tend to be, you know, 
the rich elites. But there are different actors, so it's complex in that phenomena. But what we do know is that there's a really interesting mirroring of existing inequalities in the world that occur when you look at the digital world, right? There's a reason why like, rent is so expensive in San Francisco right now, right? There's a reason why so many startups and so many tech companies, or like in Venice, right? Like, you know, it's like similar, right? Venice Beach. Um, there's a reason why um, you know, the, the, the venture capital companies that fund Silicon Valley tend to also be in Silicon Valley, right? Like, place still matters. There's a reason why Bangalore in India has blown up the way it has, right? There are these network nodes of, uh, that mirror various systems of inequality. So it's not a one-to-one -one relationship, it's a refraction. That's like what I kind of argue in the book. It's like passing a light through some prism and then it spreads in new ways, but the source of the light still matters. Yeah. Yeah. So taking it to the macro level, because that's where I want to go with my question. I think that's more a way. Do you want to? Yeah. You're Thanks. I, okay. Thank you. Yeah. I want I, everybody here. Yeah. Taking it to the macro level, which is where you went, which is where my question was coming from. So I'm looking at capital move through these information systems. I'm looking at Venice. I'm looking at Snapchat, a failing awesome. company that is now in auction for billions. You also mentioned the hedge fund manager whose um, system information... Robert uh, Mercer. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Hedge fund means that's the paradigm of wealth while you sleep. That's the paradigm of wealth being accrued away from us. So these people in Venice, right, these kids, this work core, right, they're looking at um, longtime artists uh, who are wearing T-shirts. They have T-shirts. These uh, protest movements that are occurring on the streets of Venice. Um, Long-term residents, affordable living people. They're looking at this with um, kind of affection and, and awe of these. their parents. Isn't it quaint what they're doing here? Isn't it sweet? They're not acknowledging the new world. But they're in protest of this happening. You know, it's just indulgent kind of... Um, maneuvering that they're viewing this with. How do you square that with this article I read on Silicon Beach in the New Yorker yeah. and Remnick and Cassidy and yeah. some of these writers doing the that. best yeah. journalism, right? Yeah. Okay, so these are the people who are in charge of overthrowing our government right now, which will be done. We see it happening and who are in this information fight to get the truth across and bring the real world back to us and they will prevail. But at the same time, capital is moving in this sure. vein, which is really actually working against us. So what's the upshot of that? Will these um, this younger elite workforce um, be looking indulgently at their parents protesting on the street um, and still taking over the world, still um, limiting us to lower and lower uh, economic levels. You know, how, what is the upshot of that young, inexperienced, elite workforce, that group of people in charge of the world, in charge of real estate? What are they going to do to us? I mean, that's an amazing, amazing question, revolutionary question there. Um, and you're yeah, I mean, I see myself in solidarity with all these movements and communities that I that I write about, for sure, and write with. A lot of these, I should say that, a lot of the pieces, a lot of the publications that have come out of my research are authored with my community partners, and that's really important, you know. Um, I, I think insofar as it's possible, the, um, the, the, the engineers and young labor force that are, that are you know, populating these tech companies, there's not too many of them necessarily, even though they're expanding massively, there's a big labor issue that's going on with Silicon Valley, right? 
Like with Instagram, sold for over a billion dollars with 14 employees, right when Kodak went bankrupt with tens of thousands of employees on a macroeconomic level, that's an issue. I think, I, I mean, I have a hopeful perspective as well, which is that there needs to be ways in which the movements that you stand for and then many of us sort of feel a kinship with can be articulated with those, with those young, you know, brainy kids that are incredibly uh, taking positions of incredible power over how technologies are designed and rolled out. I do believe that as flawed as it was in some ways, the Zuckerberg manifesto was partly a reaction to the incredible amount of criticism he's getting from a lot of us um, after what's been going down. I mean, it took till, took till this, you know, this moment, which is not the happiest of ones, but like... Yeah, well, Zuckerberg was, you know, there's a bunch of things, right? They're going to correct their trending topics to not um, privilege. Uh, uh, they they want to standardize them more. That's not necessarily a solution, but it's, it's better in some ways. They're also going to um, try to show, um, try to do more uh, verification on content. Because we know there's incredible exposés about fake news and where it comes from and all this stuff, right? They're going to do some of that. They're going to try to open us up to visualize some of the choices around which content was selected, which is what I've been arguing for. They say that, at least. So there are some ways. So, I mean, my answer, it's a very simplistic answer, but it's just like the more we communicate with with the with these folks because like I could have been one of them like I was in those worlds some of my friends are in that world still the, the more they understand the political and cultural dynamics that are being created by these by these by these um, systems I think that there's a space to build together I really do I really do I think the the ones that are a little more out there have maybe gone off the deep end but I think most people are not that way you know, I want to take this book to Google. You know, I want, I want it. That's that's what I want. Like, I want, I want this to be part of like our technology worlds as well. That's my goal. You know. Yeah. You know, if I can address that that questions as a as a dialoguer and kind of yeah. going back to what you had said as well. Like, remember this interview with the Chinese minister of economy, and he says, you know, we know that you know civil engineers build buildings, or friends, you know, build bridges. Electronic engineers build machines. You, you know, electric engineers build this. Mechanical engineers build engines, and they all get compensated sort of better than other professionals. But what do financial engineers build? That they get compensated so much more than all kinds, all, all, all other kinds of engineers. So I think that once oh, yeah, the old, once the old-fashioned ways of plundering become unattainable, like colonialism, invasion, um, you got to figure out new ways. So I think it is. No, the founders and owners of these high-tech companies are all another form of engineers, and they're plundering actually individuals. You know, like you said, you know, Facebook is worth 1.8 billion human beings. You know, so then if you're getting it, like somebody said, if you're getting a service, and the service is free, that means that the product is you. You know, so I think that in a way these companies are in fact perpetuating a new wave of like colonialism and invasion, but they're going for the human beings rather than the territory. It's a reminder, remember the time cover, like the person of the year was you, like a few years ago? Yeah, yeah. Yes, Paul. Yeah. Awesome, thank you. Can you speak up as loudly you as you can? Oh, okay. you this thing won't reach, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
and we talked about that the internet is going to be a place in the future where it's going to be the wild west where all the villains can hang out. Our goal is to take over the institutions. Because what I see the problem is, is why don't people have a computer? Why don't people can create their own internet, their own ways of... Oh, yeah, thank you for why, saying that. Why is it just them? And I, I totally hear your point. The colonization of the mind. Was it a dating app that turned into a place where you talk to your own friends and now I'm realizing there's another section of Facebook that just sells products that seems to pop up on my app all the time? <laughs> so there you go. So my question would be, what do you think of elite, like look, news, we go away from news because the institutions have been co-opted by corporate interests, right? So we yeah. go to online media because we think we're going to get alternative information that we don't anymore. So we need yeah. to go and take over the institutions. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Not power. It's. I mean, that's great. And you know, and so like, it's. It's a. Isn't it a really w a weird moment, right? Because like a lot of us were critical of like the news media, right? And now the news media is sort of like aligning with these yeah. because because they have had the rugs you know th thrown out from from under them all of a sudden. Um, I. This gave me an opportunity, Paul, to to talk about this project that I'm working on that is like super super interesting and inspiring. It's in the Oaxaca region of Mexico. Um, it's an incredibly diverse um, uh, set of communities there. Uh, Zapotec, Mixtec, and Mije communities. Dozens of languages spoken there. Very, bio, very biodiverse. And these communities have been disenfranchised. And this is like where I'm going with my work. And I think it's connected to what you're saying. Um, these communities have been disenfranchised by telecommunication systems because they don't have enough money. There are not enough people. They live in cloud forests, right? Like, and so these guys want. They don't want like Facebook. But they want mobile phones. And why do they want mobile phones? Because they can pra partly because they can practice their own language, which have never been written down. Zapotec languages are, have, have, have been written, but like not a lot, you know? And they, partly because of colonialism, right? I mean, directly, straight up. So instead, uh, and so the telecom companies, Telcel and Telmex, were like, we're not going to, you know, it's, it's not going to happen. Or we're going to charge you like N times more than what a wealthy urban person would be charged. And these are the history of telecommunications in the United States as well as had these. So they're creating their own cooperative. They're building their own networks. They're building their own towers. They're setting up their own infrastructures. And, they're, oh, and these are collectives. They're collectively owned. So like, I love this kind of stuff because this is, an, this is a, a re-articulation of cultural, political, and economic sovereignty right, over network technology. It's not just about like, oh, crap, like Facebook isn't serving my interests. It's like, well, let's re-engineer stuff. And and so like the process and the subtlety of how you think about building those kinds of networks is amazing. And so these guys, that's my friend Peter Bloom with some of the some Zapotec elders, like he's trying to spread this thing all over the world. And it's actually in this weird moment, networks can be helpful, right? Because Al Jazeera Plus did a did a piece on this. And so this actually globalizes the awareness, right? This is like what the internet can be good for, for spreading information rapidly. So kind of globalizes the awareness of this amazing project and like it's also a, a, a it's like a memory that like very few people know you know professor Levra, my colleague has written about this where you know like mobile phone not mobile phone phone telephony in the united states was like cooperative Y'all know that? Like, it was a, it were rural cooperatives that owned and managed and built, or not built, but like basically assembled their own telephone networks. So, like, technology can take on those manifestations. It's just right now, it's like, it's, it's, it's slipped out. Yeah. I, yeah, Shama. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so, a lot, a lot of 
choose to put a lot of where we choose to put our power is through our money right and where we choose to spend money and I speak not only as an individual but someone who works with businesses and marketing and business and money right and so there's there's a need Right, in terms of as an individual to be able to use our money in different ways that support our own causes, but but how much of that is going to be self-interest, right? So how we choose to spend our money, um, and in terms of technology, and I guess more relevant, you know, as an individual and living our day-to-day lives and not being able to necessarily make you know huge protests or, or be so activated. What are things that we can do? Right, not only in terms of individuals, but also as small businesses, right, and as people who have to survive in a highly global, highly competitive marketplace, where these big bright barts and all these people actually not only skew information, but make it a lot more expensive yeah. for a lot of my clients and you know my friends who have businesses to even you know compete on that, right? So, if we're not them and we're us, right, what do we do? Well, I mean, I uh, this is just my opportunity to mention how like into Bernie Sanders I was, <laughs> which is like I'm in the joint. But it's but, uh, but I I don't know why your question gave me Bernie Sanders as an answer, and I it's well I'll tell you why it's it's because that was that was a movement you know whatever its flaws might be for some of you that was a movement that was pretty decentralized in lots of ways right like people were giving small amounts of money they were coming together around certain causes and it it almost succeeded right and so like. I think about like the ecosystem of businesses and organizations similarly like if they can stand for social causes right like right here like I, I hope I thanked Skylight because they're so awesome this is such an awesome bookstore right like can I just say that they've been raising money for Standing Rock right like this is a business right a business that it, I hope is making money but they're raising money for these causes. So, like, I think, you know, in this moment where, like, every sing- like so many values and causes are being attacked and, and assaulted, um, I think we just, we should not give in to the hysteria that's being produced by that, which is amplified by Facebook, right? It's amplified by Facebook. And instead, start thinking about every action that we take and how it can support some notion of ethics. And that it comes from our heart. It doesn't have to come from the dogma of Bernie Sanders or a political party or anybody else, right? It, it comes from our heart. And I know you do that because you're my wife. You know? <laughs> That's why I got the tough question. <laughs> I, you know, <laughs> okay, I just want to say, because your book basically is questioning these tools that most of us are thinking of them as like, how can this tool help me? Right, and you're going like, what is actually the nature of this tool, and what, okay, right. how, how is, how might it be working against us? And I, I, as we're talking about corporations and companies, I, I thought of Felicuti, right, the great Felicuti who had this, who had, who had a song called ITT, right, International Thief Thief, which then became AT and T. You know, so I, I was like, you know, if Felicuti was making music today, instead of saying follow me on Twitter or follow me on Facebook. I bet you'd be saying, chase Twitter out of my town. Chase Facebook out of my village. Chase Google out of here, man. Follow me. Yeah, right. So, like, you know, who is making songs about the real meaning of Google, you know? Fellow had it clear. International thief, thief, right? (laughs) I have to take some others. Yeah, yeah, no, but I will talk to... Yeah, Professor Libra. And 
I think you can also speak to this. One of the things that's very interesting right now that may be an opportunity in this very difficult moment is suggested by several of the questions, I think, and that is looking for unusual alliances. And, and being sensitive to the fact that if you get out of your bubble, if you uh, don't just kind of reinforce the same sort of things, you might be open, in fact, to using the technologies to find something surprising and find that Bernie Sanders, I think, was popular in many, many reasons because yeah. he was smart about seeing across yeah. that wasn't traditional lines. And I think that appeals to people even if articulated. So I think one of the things that the technologies and community technologies, cooperative technologies, um, might allow us to do is to look for those unusual places. You know, I was talking with another one of our, our colleagues the other day. She says, who would have thought in our lifetime, she and I are saying, that we would think now, okay, who's on the right side of things? The CIA and the Pope? <laughs> 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 and I think this is what yeah. we have to yeah. say. Well, of course it's not for the CIA, but, yeah. but some of them, just as we have with Trump. They're leaking. Yeah, they're leaking. They got big tools. Yeah. Yeah. So just being open to these, yeah. to these new differences, maybe some of you have heard, the idea that maybe left right isn't a big question anymore, so And the question of what kind of openness, what sorts of connections, if we're going to take networks seriously, that's what it is. Yeah, I mean that. I think you just said it incredibly well. I mean, it's um, it's this is this is there are these moments now, right? Like there's a space that's opened up for a lot of um, uh, for new formations, right? And 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 I think and I don't and I and I think it's because you know these systems of of that have produced so much inequality have sort of run their course, right? I mean, hopefully. Um, and, um, you know, sort of Frankenstein's emerged out of that, right? <laughs> and, um, and, and, I, and, I think, and I think quite a bit about um, how various leaders today have tried to show points of agreement that people can get around. And I actually also think, you know, Ralph Nader wrote a book about this just recently, right? About like new, I, I forgot the title of it, but it was basically about how aspects of the left and right are not actually left and right. They're actually just people and communities that can agree on certain things. I think we just got to start there and we have to build movements around those things, you know? And I think, I think that um, otherwise the thunder of, you know, sort of dissent will be, will be stolen from us by these institutionalized mechanisms of power and, and co-optation. Yeah. It is a time of institutional rearrangement and to some extent breakdown. And the idea that people might start reading the New York Times again in paper uh, is an interesting question. Yeah. But but it's at those inflection points where things begin to kind of fall apart. Yeah. Right? That glorious, the brightness, but then Opportunity. Yeah. Opportunity for, for new And this is exactly like what my friends in Egypt were telling me, right? Like in early 2011 when I was there, right? Like I basically was watching this go down. I, like my colleague Leah Libra, we both are really interested in relationships between technologies, media, and activism. And 
and I like I was seeing this go down, and I was and I and I went there, and people were like, this things had gotten so bad that that gave us the opportunities to do this, and what is this? is not defined as just people protesting in a simplistic way. It's all these new formations, all of these new ways of building mobilization. And yeah, institutional power and hegemonic power kind of cut it off in 2013. But like, this is a, this is a process, you know? This is a process. And um, so, you know, I hope, I hope for that here. Yeah, Sunday. Thank you. So I'm an educator. I teach high school English. And um, it's really interesting, even being um, not too much older than the students, the way that they use technology is really fascinating to me. Um, And even to the point where um, they have so much access to both myself, to a lot of information, and knowing like a little bit about everything. Um, And then I, I see with them only seeing it as um, a way to connect, but then being so disconnected in a in our communal space. And so it's like, you know, the beginning of class when, like, we haven't gotten started and they're on their phones and they're chatting and everything. And it's so loud, and I'm so frustrated. <laughs> it's, like, so loud. But then when it's time to, like, sit down and talk about a topic that's relevant to them and important, it's completely silent. And so there's no kind of way of connecting. And so it's really heartbreaking sometimes. Um, And so right now I'm grappling with how to break those down and kind of bring this sense of community back to the way that we learn. And so in thinking about technology, um, I'm thinking about what are the ways in which we can reteach community and culture and have technology be a part of that because it is so much a part of their existence, right? So there's not the sense of removing it, but how do we relearn and reshape how technology exists for them that doesn't pull them away from one another, but more so reminds reminds them of the actual connections that they have besides, you know, how many people they snapchat and like snapchatting each other in class with them like not talking to each other face to face and so that's such a great question so it's really about like how do we kind of collectively use technology in the process of like collective learning and learning from one another and it's like that's kind of like what i was seeing happening but more like people and communities claiming technology in those two examples i showed the one from tahrir square and the one with my zuni friends um it you know there's like my friend Jay does a lot of work on this, right? He's a media arts teacher in LAUSD in South LA. But it's but it's basically like, you know, like what is technology, right? It's just like anything by which we we create we create different worlds and possibilities. That's all. It's the it's the the instantiation of possibility, you know. And so there are so many amazing examples, right? Of of how people can collectively create and design and learn through technology, right? So, like, I'll give you, like, one example. I don't even know this is the best example, but, I mean, when I was in graduate school, there was, you know, even though I was kind of criticizing some parts of, like, my experience, we were also doing some 
awesome stuff with kids in schools where we were building, we were getting, we were all together like designing like interactive like Lego robotic technologies, right? Like where the kids were learning how to build processing and computing power into like, like I'm talking like Lego Mindstorms and stuff like that. This is like relates to this theory that we call social constructionism where people come together to construct and design phenomena and through that process they learn from each other and they build their own bonds. And so, like, I really believe, I, I do believe that that's what's happening to some extent in in this project, right? In this in this in this project. I mean, this is these guys are together, kind of building and designing their own network infrastructures, and it's not necessarily they're they're not building and designing solely to achieve an end. That's part of it, but the process itself of like collectively building and designing is like part of what makes it amazing. So I just think we can. There, I mean, I want to keep thinking about this. Um, I think we together can think of many, many examples where people and communities came together around something that involves technology, but it wasn't about technology, right? It was about technology as a mediating artifact. That's the word we use in academia. But basically, it's it's a it's it's a platform of collective expression, and and I just want to remind folks of this. It's like remember, like Facebook, it started as a community network. I'm not saying it was like the the dream network, but it was it was a Harvard community network. It was it was a com and like the early earliest online communities were like like the Well. Do you all know that one? It's like hippies in Marin County. <laughs> Deadheads, John Perry Barlow, and people like that, right? Like he used to play, he played drums in the Grateful Dead, right? Like or he was he stand in, huh? Lyricist. Lyricist. Oh, he's the lyricist of the Grateful Dead. So so like. You know, I mean, these tend to be elite white communities. Like, let's say that too, right? Like, so, like, I'm not, I'm not saying that like this is the way to go or like some great examples, but I'm just trying to say that like there, there are always possibilities for like us to think about anything digital or not in a collective way. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. You can take. Actually, let's give it to him this way. I want everybody to hear The way you were describing, uh, you made you, your, the work that you're doing right now about uh, Robert Mercer and uh, yeah. Steve Van and the whole sort of yeah. bright bar kind of weaponizing of the internet, I'm, or network technologies in general, I guess. I'm curious um, if you think that there's a fundamental difference in how network technologies have been functioning before that. Like, are they doing anything fundamentally different than how advertising has worked? Um, That's a great question. I mean, you, um, you were you were saying like when I was when I was like reading this article about Mercer and like data analytics, and there's a there's a group called Cambridge Analytica that is worth all of you checking out. You know, maybe with. VPN or, or encryption, <laughs> but um, but um, but there, um, I think it's I think it's very similar to what marketers have always been doing. I just think the sophistication and the scale of the analysis is that much higher. I just think that there was there is there is an incredibly important moment. It's really interesting. Like if you look at like what Obama was doing with data during the um, 08 election, it was about. Um, 
data analysis of on, on a very like high level of granularity, but like place-based data, right? Like data, oh, like this community, all I have to do is put these resources in and I'll get them to turn like to my side versus, um, you know, McCain's side, right? But now, this data analysis, I believe that some of the most sophisticated social media marketing firms are probably doing this kind of stuff, but this data analysis is, is, is about data across networks, it's like what people are doing online. But remember, it's not like just online, right? Like I like to say this. Snowden, Edward Snowden made the point that when this is on airplane mode and it's not on airplane mode right now, it's gathering data about you. So there's so much data that's being gathered about us. Um, I think it's being used, of course, by technology companies. But then if there are political actors who are trying to weaponize these phenomena, then no longer then it moves into a much more, like even more sinister space, if you will. And so so I think it's I think it's continuous with what's happening. I think part of the story of every political movement, at least in the Western world, where there's a technology saturation kind of phenomena, is is a story of of, of internet and internet manipulation. So I think that's it. Yeah. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you all so much. Appreciate it. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.